Good afternoon. My name is Bob Hahn, and I'm delighted to be doing this podcast uh, for the Technology Policy Institute. I'm a senior fellow there, and the podcast is called To Think Minimum. Uh, we're broadcasting to you today from beautiful downtown Aspen, and if you haven't been here, I highly recommend it. It's got a splendid view of some spectacular mountains. Today, it's uh, my pleasure to uh, interview uh, Kibitz and possibly chat with uh, a person who's a good friend of mine and also an eminent regulator in the United Kingdom. Uh, and I'm going to say a little bit more about uh, Catherine Ross. But Catherine, let me just say hi. Hi, Bob. Um, Catherine's a very well-known applied economist, uh, spent some time at, at Oxford uh, with a good friend of mine, a professor there by the name of George Yarrow, and since then has moved on to greater pastures. Um, uh, most recently, and I think where we met, uh, Catherine was head of the water agency in the UK. And what's the formal title for the water agency? If, you, if you're seeing it on a Sunday, it's called the Water Services Regulation Authority, but for most of the week it's just called Offwat. And uh, do they have good water at Offwat? Oh, excellent. Oh, First good. class. Good, good. Um, in any event, um, Catherine has actually moved on from Offwat and now has a position in the private sector. Uh, and I'll let you, can you say one or two words about that? Sure. I'm, I'm looking after regulation for a company called BT, which is British Telecom. So it's sort of roughly the equivalent of AT&T. Um, in the UK, and I look after regulatory affairs. And most of that is about regulatory affairs within the UK, so thinking about uh, what our telecoms regulator Ofcom is doing and how it will affect the company. Uh, but actually, BC is present in more than 180 different countries, so I'm also looking at regulation across the globe. That sounds fantastic, and can we charge you for that advertisement? <laughs> at a reasonable rate. Okay, great. Um, before taking the position with the Water Authority and with BT, uh, Catherine did extensive work in the regulatory arena and worked for the regulatory authority there uh, involved in overseeing railroads, and we may touch on that today. And uh, she's also done a lot of work in what the Brits call competition, but we call antitrust, and uh, we may touch on that as well. Um, her experience in the UK, uh, um, I, in fact, I probably don't know anyone who's more experienced and also has a serious economics degree um, and who's done so much in the regulatory arena. So we, we feel very, very privileged to be able to chat with you today. And uh, if, if you misspeak at all, I understand your, your jet lag. So one of the beautiful uh, features of recording is that we can edit the tape. So um, feel free to let it rip on this very exciting um, subject. I thought we'd start um, by uh, just a very simple question. Could you tell me, uh, in your view, um, either with examples or with a definition that might be suitable for your or my class at Oxford, what the heck is economic regulation? Yeah, well, this is a really good question, and I, I suspect we could probably spend about two hours just talking about this. Um, I mean, I kind of boil it down to, to, to two schools, two schools of thought on this. The, the first is really a school of thought that concentrates on the economic regulatory toolkit and tends to see it in quite a sort of narrow and, and purist way. So they would characterize economic regulation as really being about the process uh, of setting price controls and quality standards uh, and the process of, of enforcing licenses. 
Um, and that is certainly an awful lot of what economic regulators spend their time doing. But there is a different school of thought, um, and that is taking a much more broader view, in, in a sense, more of a sort of teleological view, and thinking about what economic regulators are there for. And I think if you look at it through that lens, you quickly realise that economic regulators play a key role, uh, essentially, in aligning the interests of private providers of key public services with the interests of customers and society. And if you look at it through that lens, then they obviously they have a much more diverse toolkit because they're doing all of the things that they can within their power to create that alignment of interest. And that's personally, that's the view that I take. And I think it's much more aligned with what the public expects today. That's great. Let's pretend you're talking to my parents at the dinner table and rewind that. Okay, you used lots of big words that I'm not sure everyone in our audience may appreciate, like price controls, um, quality standards, and a word that I'm not even sure I could spell, teleological. Um, can you give me an example? Let's say you're the head of the water regulatory authority there, you're doing work for the railroad regulatory authority. What's a day like? Gosh, uh, well, a day could be anything you like. Um, but principally what we are doing when, when we're working in a regulator is we are limiting the ability of companies to exercise monopoly power. So if you think about the kind of things that a company might do, if it has monopoly power, it might put prices up or it might put prices up and deteriorate the service quality. So typically in a regulator, you spend a lot of your time looking at both of those two things. What, are the, what is a fair price that the monopoly company should be able to charge? And what should a reasonable standard of service for that kind of price look like? Okay, so you're trying to prevent price gouging. Yeah. Okay, so that makes sense to me. So as you know, I lived in, in England for about seven years and used to ride, ride the train on occasion, and I loved it. You know, Because one of the great things about living in England is you can get to 99% of the places you want to go by taking a train mm -hmm. or a bus. Um, so my wife and I loved the fact that you could do this and the trains were supposedly fairly regular, but there were two problems I had. One was there seemed to be frequent breakdowns on some of the trains that, that I was riding. And the second is the, the, the quality of the, the coaches, I'm not sure what you call them, the rolling stock or whatever, um, was not always, I'm not talking about first class, but you know, it might've been 30 years old. Um, so what is it that the railroad regulators are doing to fix this problem? <laughs> or or why, why are we paying you or your successors to do this stuff? And, yeah. and what's the problem here? Well, I have to say, Bob, I mean, if you spent time in the UK as you did, you would realize that one of the things that the, the Brits like to complain about most is trains. <laughs> uh, so you are not alone in complaining about the quality of the train service in, in, in the UK. Um, there are basically two different forms of regulation that apply uh, on railways in the UK. So one is a form of regulation that governs what the people who operate the trains uh, can charge their customers and the kind of quality of service that you experience on the train. And that's really done by government because what the government does is it lets a series of contracts mm -hmm. by which private companies can sort of bid for those contracts and then they get the right to operate the trains on the tracks. And as part of those contracts, the government sets the prices uh, that the, the, the train operators can, can charge their passengers. And they're also pretty interventionist on things like the quality of the rolling stock, so the quality of the train carriages that you're, you're sitting in. Um, so that's really all up to government. Um, and then the government basically lets these contracts and the people who bid the most for the contracts get to run the services, um, which is a little controversial because, of course, one of the ways that they get the money to bid high for the contracts is by saying that they will actually raise prices uh, to customers. So one of the things that, that has happened in the UK is that the price of travelling on the, on the trains has gone up 
uh, enormously uh, over the past 20 years, which means that people are wondering what they're getting for their money. But actually what's simultaneously been happening is that the government has been reducing the subsidy uh, that's going into those trade operations. So, you know, taxpayers have been doing well, but passengers have been paying, paying more. Um, government, I think, is actually coming around to your view, uh, which is that the quality of the trains isn't good enough. So a lot of the contracts that it's letting at the moment include a stipulation that the train operator uh, has to bring in new rolling stock. Of course, that is causing another problem, uh, because I think one of the things that you talked about is delays uh, on the system. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, every time you introduce new, new rolling stock, you have to train the drivers to use the new rolling stock. But you also, you're trying to keep costs down. So basically what you're trying to do as a train operator is you're trying to take your drivers and squeeze more and more out of them, including training on the new trains and driving the old trains. And one of the reasons why there's loads of delays in the UK at the moment is basically there's not enough slack in the system to do both of those things at once. That makes sense. So, you know, that, that, that is not helping. So anyway, that's trains, which are regulated by the government through contracts. And then there's track. Now, track is owned by a monopoly company called Network Rail, mm-hmm. uh, which is now actually sitting back on the public balance sheet. And that is regulated by what you might call a traditional economic regulator that sets the charges uh, that Network Rail can charge the train operators for running on the track. Uh, and it spends a lot of time trying to get under the skin of what efficient costs of running a railway uh, would, would look like. Um, and then, of course, when, the, when, when train operators and government want to pay for improvements um, to the train track, then the ORR, the Office of Rail and Road, comes along and looks at what the efficient cost of doing that is. And one of the most controversial parts of that is how do people get compensated uh, when those works, those engineering works are on the track overrun? Uh, and so, you know, there are a lot of delays, but whenever that happens, there's a transfer of funds that goes from network rail to the train operators. And in theory, should go from the train operators back to the passengers. But of course, the passengers don't claim the compensation. So actually, those delay minutes are quite a nice earner uh, for a lot of the train operators in the UK. Good. So let me, uh, I don't want to spend the whole time on railroads, but they, they do fascinate me. And I did get a Lionel set for Christmas one time and it was, it was great. And I love putting the smoke tablets in the engine and wa- wa- watching the engine as it went around the track, you know, um, but, but I have a, I have a broader question for you. So we, so we have a, a company in the United States called Amtrak. Mm. Uh, that provides service between New York and, and Washington and other places like Boston. And it's been subsidized for a long time. Um, imagine, I don't want to just stick, stay on Amtrak, but imagine that you are either um, have the opportunity to whisper in the ear of the next president of the United States or the next prime minister of the UK, if there is a UK, you know, in five years or whatever. What would you tell him or her about a good or a not so good way to regulate the rail industry if your objective is to get consumers good value? Should we have regulation at all? Yeah, I I think regulation is a really, really useful uh, element uh, of a railway system because essentially what it does is it enables you to give scrutiny to cost. So railways are complicated things and they're costly things. There's a lot of just on the ground engineering. And if you really, really don't pay attention to cost, uh, then those costs can, can spiral and, and an economic regulator can help you to scrutinise those costs. And of course, if you keep costs down, that's more efficient. And if it's more efficient, then people pay less to use it. If they pay less to use it, they consume more and everybody is happier. So paying attention to costs is, is, is a big factor, but not driving costs down so low that you don't get investment. It's got to be actual genuine cost efficiencies that you focus on. 
Sounds like a delicate balance. It's a delicate balance, but that's what regulations can help. Okay, so let's talk about a delicate balance or what might be a delicate balance in another area where you are one of the world's premier authorities, both as a regulator and as a thinker, and that's water, like the stuff we're drinking on this table here. Um, what challenges did you face as CEO of the Water Regulatory Authority in the UK? And um, what can you tell us about the challenges you faced, how you address them, and lessons that can be learned more broadly in the area of water? Yeah, where, where to start? I mean, a, a lot of the... A lot of the challenges that we faced when I was a the water regulator are actually quite common to regulated sectors across the UK. So one of the things that we were trying to do was incentivize uh, a massive program of investment, particularly to improve uh, environmental quality and also to improve resilience of water supplies in the face of things like climate change and population growth. Um, and that is great. That's really, really important. But of course, you have to manage that with the fact that people need their water bills to be affordable. Uh, and in the UK, people pay a separate bill for their water services. So it's very transparent. That's great. People can see what they're paying. But there's a limit uh, to how much they're, they're prepared to pay. So ultimately, the question you're trying to solve is, how do you get massive, massive, you know, 100 billion million pounds of investment into a sector while keeping bills affordable? Uh, and a lot of that came down to how you use the regulatory toolkit. Because, of course, if you're regulating a monopoly uh, service uh, and you're regulating a service where you're pretty sure people are going to demand that service not just today but into the future, then one of the things you can do as a regulator is you can enable the companies that you regulate to smooth costs between generations because you can give a guarantee as a regulator that if the firm uh, incurs those costs today, then you will enable it to recover those costs through regulated revenues in the future. So that was the big balance. Probably the biggest problem that the economic regulator was trying to solve in water in the UK uh, was around intergenerational equity and how you spread those lumpy costs over a long period uh, to help everybody get not just the, the resilient water supplies you need, but also the environmental quality. So I heard you say a couple of things, and I, and I guess I have a question. So, so you talk both in the context of rail and in the context of water about getting people to invest, I guess, in the infrastructure, the rolling stock or whatever you need to supply water. And then you also talked about this four-letter word that you, you mentioned earlier that economists like to use called cost, um, you know, and you want to keep the cost down. So is this a generic feature of economic regulation where you're trying to encourage investment in there, but you're also trying to make sure that people get reasonable value for their money? Yeah, I mean, to an extent, that that, that is certainly true, because, you know, e even if your network is, is, is in more or less steady state, that network has to be maintained and it has to be renewed to maintain its, its, its capacity. Um, but I think one of the things that we're living through in the UK right now is that we're, we're 30 years after a lot of our public services were privatised. Um, and some of them are now approaching a period where they need you know, massive game-changing uh, investments. So, for example, uh, in the electricity transmission uh, network, government has come out with a target that the UK will be net carbon, net zero carbon by 2050. Uh, that requires a massive re-engineering of the electricity uh, network, and that requires massive investment. Same in water. You know, we're facing you know climate change and population growth. It needs a massive amount of investment in infrastructure to cope with that. And in telecoms too. You know, we we we've, we've been using the copper. A network that's been in place for, for decades, and now we know we need fibre and we know we need 5G. 
So you know, it's it, that that trade-off between needing investment and trying to keep costs down and keep bills affordable has always been at the heart of regulation. But I think a lot of economic regulators right now are facing that trade-off in a really stark way because of the lumpy, massive new investment programs that are needed. So, I, as you know, I go over to the UK occasionally uh, um, to to sample the pubs in London and Oxford and do other things like think a little bit with my friends. Um, but I guess one of my questions for you is, is that you mentioned the word privatization and the UK went through that many years ago. Could you tell us a little bit about what that process was like? And are you implying, because I don't want to put words in your mouth, are you implying that this privatization and regulation that took place may have been a mistake? Or are you simply saying that it's done okay for the last 20 or 30 years but we need to rethink certain aspects of it as we move forward into over the next few decades. Yeah, gosh, there's, there's a lot in that. Um, and I think we might want to come back to this question about whether privatization is a good thing or, or, okay. or not, because that, as you know, that's a big debate right now. Um, but in terms of what happened at the time of privatization, I think it's really important to be clear that there were lots of different things happening at once. So one thing that was happening was the, literally the transfer of ownership uh, of businesses that had been owned and operated by the state into the hands of you know, private shareholders. So that was literally just a transfer of ownership. Uh, but in most sectors, so I'm talking about electricity and gas, uh, in rail and in telecoms, it wasn't just about the transfer of ownership. It was also a process of market liberalisation um, and the creation of competition. So you weren't just privatising monopolies, you were privatising companies that were monopolies, but that were being systematically opened up to competition. So I think if you're asking the question about whether, quote, privatisation was a success or not, you kind of have to divide it into two. You know, one is, does the private ownership uh, and the governance and the private sector discipline that you have in those privately owned providers, the public service, you know, create benefits? And then there's a separate question about whether competition is the right market model and what the pros and cons of that are. And as you know, I mean, both of those questions are being revisited right now. So talk to me a little bit, uh, or maybe you could provide an example about where competition might be the right model. Um, you know, perhaps something in the energy sector, I don't know. And where, where competition isn't necessarily going to work because something looks like a lot like a monopoly no matter what you do. Yeah, okay. I mean... I'm currently working in a telecoms company, and mm -hmm. that is routinely uh, held up as being one of the sectors where competition has delivered massive benefits for consumers, and, I, and I'd agree with that. Um, so you've got a couple of things going on there. One is that you have uh, prices that are you know, held down, uh, but then the other thing is that consumers are getting way more for the same price than they were you know, two, three decades uh, ago, and there's a massive amount of, of product uh, innovation and, and service innovation. All that's happened because of competition. Um, but really, the, the kind of competition that has driven that in telecoms to date has been downstream retail competition. So the network has been pretty much a monopoly. It's been regulated pretty much as a monopoly. Um, and then what the regulator has been trying to do has been to hold down wholesale prices, make sure that there is enough value downstream at the retail end to encourage competition and then stand back and, and let that deliver for consumers. And, and I, there's no argument, I think, that, that that's been a good thing. Now, you can compare and contrast that with what happened in water, um, where unlike most sectors that were privatised um, in the UK, uh, the water sector in England and Wales was privatised as a monopoly and with no intention uh, of roaming out competition. And in fact, there is very, very limited mm -hmm. competition um, in water. And in fact, 
couple of years ago, um, the UK government decided that it would open the business customer retail market uh, in water to competition. So residential customers, domestic customers, they can't choose their, their supplier. Now, in water, the argument always was that the economics was different, right? It was a natural monopoly, quote unquote. Uh, and, and what does that mean? What's Bigger it? is better and cheaper, or what does that mean? Yeah, so, I mean, water, in water, really, the, the issue is that water is cheap as a substance. It's heavy. Um, and basically, there are long distances between where the water is and where the, the people are. Um, and so actually, it doesn't really work uh, to introduce competition uh, in that environment. So it's always been seen as a, as a natural monopoly. It's always been seen a, a, as big, heavy, low value and not susceptible uh, to competition. Um, but I would argue, um, and I did argue when I was regulating water in the UK, that you need to distinguish between different parts of the value chain. So the wholesale provision of water, so you know, getting the water out of the ground, treating it, transporting it, and getting it to your tap, that is a monopoly. Mm-hmm. You know, it doesn't make sense to have duplicated networks. It doesn't make sense to have two different sets of infrastructure doing that. But actually, at the retail level, when you're really talking about customer service and you're talking about billing, anybody could do that. Uh, the economics of that aren't you know, telling you that there can only be one provider because lots of people could do that. Um, and I was quite pleased when, when the UK government decided to open the business customer market in England competition. So then they could see what benefits that could deliver for, for customers. Now, it's only been open for a couple of years, so it's a bit too soon to tell. But there are certainly developments that are happening in the water sector for business customers that would never have happened without competition. So some politicians, notably the the head of the Labour Party, have called for nationalizing certain industries uh, or, or certain sectors in the UK. And I'm wondering if there's any place that you think um, nationalization, as this politician defines it, might be preferred to smart regulation, uh, or if it's not a, not a good idea across the board? Yeah, it, it's certainly getting a lot of traction publicly. Uh, there's no doubt about that. And, and if you look at uh, some of the survey data that shows you what the, what the British electorate thinks, uh, there is massive support for renationalizing water, massive support for renationalizing rail, uh, and massive support for also renationalizing the post office. Um, so those are things that people seem to care very deeply about. I haven't got too much experience um, in, in relation to, to the other sectors, but we did do some work uh, on this when I was at Offwalk, when I was at the water regulator. And it was really interesting to see how people thought about water. Um, so, so just to abstract one minute from the question about price, service quality, and all that kind of stuff. If you sit in a room with a bunch of water customers, um, let's say in England, I, I will bet you anything that within the first half an hour, somebody will say, um, well, water just falls from the sky. I don't understand why we pay for it at all. <laughs> um, and also within the first half an hour, somebody will say, actually, water is a human right and the government should provide it. Now, yeah, I, I agree. I think water is a, is, a, is a human right. I wouldn't necessarily equate that with government provision, but it, but it is a human right. And people aren't daft. I mean, they do know that it does cost money to take water out of the ground and to treat it and transport it. So I, I wouldn't take that statement literally, but I think it tells you a lot about how people feel about their relationship with water. So actually, if you can couple that with some demonstrable failures uh, of the water industry to deliver what seem like really basic standards, mm-hmm. um, then actually you get a pretty powerful narrative uh, in favour of, well, there's a problem here, the industry isn't delivering, and the solution is renationalisation. Personally, I think it's a lot more complicated than that. Uh, and I think the answer is smarter regulation. 
Um, but you can also see why there's a plausible narrative for a different view. So I know we were said we were going to talk about economic regulation, but your, your statement about water sort of piqued my interest. So I, I want to ask you a sort of a broader question about water. Um, I think there was a recent UN report, I'm not sure, that talked about water scarcity being a, a very serious problem over the next 25 to 50 years. Um, what should uh, domestic regulators, the regulators within a country, be doing about this to make sure their countries are doing okay? And do we need any supranational institutions looking at these issues and or regulating these kinds of uh, um, commodities? Mm. I, I do think water scarcity is a huge issue. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a huge issue in, in parts of the globe where maybe it isn't obviously a huge issue right now. Uh, and I'm thinking here about the UK, right? I mean, everybody you, you, you talk to about water scarcity in the UK will say, how can you possibly have water scarcity? It rains all the time, um, which is true. It does rain all the time, but it's also possible that we don't have enough water when and where we need it. And that is only going to get worse with, with climate change and, and population growth. So if, if it's a problem in the UK, then it's certainly a problem elsewhere uh, across the globe and much, much more acute. So I, I think I think they're right to highlight it as an issue. Um, I think regulation can play a really important role in solving that problem. Um, I don't necessarily think a supranational regulator is the answer. Uh, and in fact, you could argue that, that more local regulators isn't a bad idea because, of course, water is a very sort of it's a very physical thing. You can't divorce water supply from the geography, um, you know, so the, 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 the natural unit when you're thinking about water supply is actually a catchment area, uh, not even necessarily a country. Um, so, you know, you need, to, you need to think very carefully when, when, when you start talking about sort of the value of supranational regulators, I think that will be limited. There is certainly a case, I think, for regulators to learn a lot in terms of what works and what doesn't from across the globe. So, for example, you know, I, I used to work uh, in, in the UK, water regulation. We were really, really interested in what the Australians were doing uh, in the face of the, uh, the millennium drought in the Murray-Darling Basin. Mm-hmm. Uh, because one of the things that, 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 that they faced there, I think uh, they had a drought that went on for something like seven, eight years. So literally the whole of the Murray-Darling Basin uh, catchment area w- w- was drying out. And they actually had to think really carefully about how they rationed scarce supplies. And one of the ways they did this, they created a sort of an allocation of water uh, that would go to the public water supply, so for, for, for sort of human consumption, because clearly that has to be a priority. Um, but then they, they, they created a system of trading for, uh, if you like, sort of agricultural uh, use of the water, which was the biggest single sort of non-human uh, use uh, of, of water in the Murray-Darling Basin. Uh, and they basically created a system of, of allocation of rights and then a secondary market where you could trade those uh, those rights. And of course, what that did is it revealed uh, those uses of water that were more valuable than others. So if you were, uh, let's say, a farmer uh, that was uh, you know, uh, producing rice, where you could sow the crop one year, and if you didn't sow it that year, that's fine, you could sow it next year. And maybe you didn't, didn't value water as highly as if you were a farmer who, who was running an orchard where if all your trees die, it's another 10 years before you can really get a decent harvest again. And that worked quite well. So we were interested in the UK at looking at how that kind of water trading system uh, could work uh, in, in the UK. I mean, another thing which, which is massively, massively uh, underdeveloped, uh, and in fact, you were, you were good enough to, to help me with um, in the UK context, is the whole approach to demand management and thinking about behavioural uh, responses uh, to, to scarcity of supply. It's, it's really interesting that... 
when you're a regulator, you spend an awful lot of time talking to the companies that you regulate. Uh, and oftentimes it is in their interests uh, to come to you with uh, very sort of heavy uh, supply side uh, solutions to things like water scarcity, uh, because, of course, they get a return uh, on the investment that they make. So, you know, if you talk to a water company about water scarcity, uh, unsurprisingly, one of their first answers is we need a new reservoir. <laughs> um, and these things cost billions. You know, they're, they're not cheap and might be the right answer. But, but let's make sure that, you know, before we spend billions on a new reservoir, we know what the demand is we're actually trying to satisfy, which might mean working with customers in a smarter way to make sure that they have information about the water they're consuming and they have choices about when and where they can consume less. And again, that's another one of these things where it doesn't necessarily take you down the road of a supranational regulator, but it is one of those things where there is massive scope for learning between countries. So I was, we're going to need to wrap it up shortly. I was intrigued by your, your, your example of the Mary Darling Basin and the idea of using markets as a way of getting a price signal about the scarcity of water um, how far do you think you can push these market ideas when you have uh, resources like water or the environment or, or whatever as a way of either more effectively or efficiently allocating these resources or getting a price signal about what people are willing to pay for them? Or is this still politically very difficult for, for legislators and decision makers to, to embrace. Yeah, I mean, politically, it is difficult. There's, there's no doubt about it, because whenever you have a market like that, somebody wins and, and, and somebody loses. Although one of the things that was really interesting in the Australian example was actually because you allocated out the water rights and then people had the ability to monetize those rights by trading them, some of the farmers actually did quite well. So it was not necessarily the case that if you were in a position where you sold your water rights, you were a loser because actually you got cash in that might have been worth more than your crop would have been in that year anyway. Sure. Um, so it was a bit more nuanced than that. But it is controversial. Um, and there is always, I think, a little bit of a temptation uh, for politicians to want to make these kinds of decisions uh, in terms of rights allocations themselves because you know they have democratic legitimacy. It should be their call on who gets this water. That's why they've been elected. Um, but to be honest, I think e even if you are in a world where the ultimate decision uh, might flow to, to the politicians, and even if you are in a world where you might need to make some political interventions, then, then the basic information that is revealed about relative values of water in different uses by having some kind of a price mechanism or some kind of a trading mechanism is enormously useful. And I think it was a very valuable lesson for, for the whole world, to be honest. Catherine, this has been a very stimulating uh, conversation, and it's always fun talking with you, and it's always fun having a beer with you. Um, we've been talking uh, at this TPI podcast uh, on the economics of regulation uh, with Catherine Ross, and uh, I hope we have a chance to have you back when you visit the United States next. Thank, Thank you, you very much. Delighted. Thank you.